Hi guys, welcome to the Miss Independent Podcast. Today we have a very special guest on. Lisa Akladziani is the co-founder of Chexy, a platform designed to help tenants pay rent online while earning rewards and building credit. She holds a Bachelor of International Economics degree from the University of British Columbia and is a CFA charter holder. She started her career in investment banking, specifically in M&A at Deloitte, and then went on to lead finance and strategy at Square, the payment processor for the Canadian market. In this episode, we're going to dive into her journey from being an international student to raising $1.5 million for her first startup, Chexy. And I say first because I know Lisa is going to go on to continue to build some incredible things. And this episode won't page well. So without further ado, Lisa, welcome to the Misfit Independent Podcast. Thank you for being here. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Nika. Really excited to, to dig in. Yeah, me too. I've done a lot of research as I do for all of my guests. So I've done some digging into your story, into your background. But where I want to start with your story specifically is at the very beginning. So okay. very beginning of your journey. I want to ask, were your parents entrepreneurs? Yes, actually. So I grew up with a family business. So my dad is one of the largest distributors of office stationery and supplies and paper, like a B2B distributor uh, in Belarus, where I was born and raised. And so I grew up seeing his business grow and also seeing the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur. I remember vividly like one of the lowest periods, I think, like in my family's time and my dad's business was around 2010, 2011. The Belarusian rubble devaluated massively. And because my dad imports from suppliers in Europe, that's obviously a massive impact to your business. And I remember that was like, that was a very tough year and some very tough times. And I think because of that, I actually didn't ever really think I was going to be an entrepreneur. So I did grow up with having an entrepreneur dad, but I never really, up until starting Chexy pretty much, thought, oh, I was going to at some point start a business. Like I was quite content climbing the corporate ladder, making you know a decent amount of money and just not taking on any of the risk because I've seen the ups and also the downs of what it's like building a business. Was your mom an entrepreneur as well? Was she involved in the business or was she a homemaker? She was kind of a homeware maker. Um, you know, she did help my dad when he originally started the business. But I will say, like, my mom was always really kind of spent time raising us. My parents are also separated when I was very young. And I have a, a sister who's six years younger than me. At a time, my sister was only one when my parents separated. So my mom dedicated herself. Which I'm incredibly grateful to, like, raise us and make sure that we kind of had everything that we needed. And so definitely very different to my dad, personality-wise, and I think, like, you know, what's important-wise. Definitely. Okay. So you grew up in Belarus. What was your childhood like? Because it's probably so different from my childhood. So I want to dig into that because I think childhood is super important. It forms us. It creates these habits and these passions that we then follow into adulthood. I love that you're asking me these questions. I've gotten a few of these, and Definitely nobody asks about this stuff, but I, but I agree. It does form you and who you eventually become. Honestly, I can't complain. My childhood was pretty typical. Um, I, at the time that, you know, I was kind of growing up, 
my dad's business was doing well, but we were by no stretch of imagination rich, but we were not struggling for money. We were comfortably upper middle class. I went to a public school in Belarus. I also had the opportunity because my dad did make some money to always have tutors and all type of extracurricular activities. And one of the things that I'm incredibly grateful to my parents for is as a kid, my schedule was always packed. I had tennis, gymnastics, piano, like you name it. I've done kind of everything. And at the time, I remember being really mad at my parents because I was always feeling like I was going school finishes at 2 p.m. in Belarus. I would be going to my, I don't know, figure skating or tennis, whatever the sport I was doing at the time. Then I would have my English tutor. And so by the time I'm done at 6, 7 p.m., you do your homework, you have dinner, you go to sleep. So I very I had very little free time, I think, as a kid. But looking back, I do think it really made me so good with managing my time and being able to do so many multiple things at once. I remember at university, I worked like 25 to 35 hours a week while taking five to six courses, so a full course load. And I remember a lot of my friends being like, how do you like find the time to study? And like, how, how do you find the time to manage all of that? You're basically like almost working a full-time job and, you know, taking a full course load. But I never really struggled. I, I think it's because I, you know, grew up always having a packed schedule. And I actually find when you have a packed schedule, you achieve more versus I tend to procrastinate if I don't have a, a packed schedule. So I grew up really well. I, I think it shaped me into who I am today. I I was pretty close with both my parents. My parents separated. My dad was always very involved and very in the picture. And I, around, I guess, when I was 15, I started thinking about, I would really like to go and study abroad. And I was actually the one who pitched that to my parents. My parents had never even thought about sending me to study abroad. And at the time, the amount of money required, that was a huge amount for my dad. And I kind of had to like, pitch him for a year before he ever took it seriously. I remember having to like make an appointment with like an agency like that helps sending kids to boarding schools and stuff and actually tell him, okay, dad, you have to be here at this time. You know, like I actually had to like really fight for what, where I ended up going. And um, I think it's probably kind of like shaped me into who I am. I'm incredibly independent and I just take things into my own hands. That's super interesting and definitely very relatable about having like a million things going on in childhood. My mom used to tell me the more things you're enrolled in, the further you are out of trouble. Yeah, so that's very true. Yeah, definitely connected with that. And then working throughout university also had a similar experience. I think it it allows you to really focus on what's important and helps you prioritize time. And as an entrepreneur, that's so important because you've got a million different things coming at you. You're taking out fires, but also trying to grow the business. You're an executor, but you still need to be a visionary. So that's why I ask these questions, right? Yeah. But where I want to dig into a little bit more is when when you moved to Canada. So first of all, you said you're on 15 when you first pitched the idea. How old were you when you actually moved? So I was 16 when I moved to the UK and I spent two years in a boarding school in as far from London as my dad could find, essentially, because my dad was like, I want you to go to a very proper boarding school. He wanted to send me to an all girls school, but I was not okay with that. and. So I ended up going to a boarding school in North Wales, tiny town called Colwyn Bay, doing my international baccalaureate there for two years, and then applying to universities all around the UK, 
the U.S. as well as Canada. And I ended up choosing Canada for multiple reasons, but actually there's some kind of news on that topic recently, but Canada offers a postgraduate work permit to international students. So if you come here and you get like a two plus year diploma, college diploma or university degree, you're guaranteed a three-year work permit after, which is incredibly valuable because you don't then, when you graduate and go looking for a job, need an employer to sponsor you. And in the UK and the US, it's completely different, right? You do need to have a line of a job and need to have someone sponsor you. And if you don't, a lot of people, that's when they end up moving back because they just they spend all this money, but they don't actually have an opportunity to settle. So that's one of the reasons I chose Canada and UBC gave me a scholarship. That was another reason. So I came here when I was 18. Okay, so 18. I know going back to your childhood, education is like a really strong family value for you. You went on then to pursue a degree in economics, not your traditional business degree. Yeah, so- which is actually a funny story. I, I don't think I really knew the difference, to be honest. Like, I did not do the research because in Europe and in the UK specifically, when, where I went to high school, if a kid wants to pursue a career in finance or business, economics is seen as like the degree that you want to be pursuing because it's almost as seen as business is too easy and not as math intensive. And so like, if you want to go and work at JP Morgan, you're going to go and get an economics degree. I applied that same reasoning to Canada, not understanding that like the business school and, and, you know, like being an arts major in economics is actually two completely different things here. And in fact, if you do want a career in finance or in business world, you're way better off at a business school because of co-op programs and alumni relationships. I did not know that. So I kind of did economics because I thought, okay, you know, I kind of want to go into finance or something finance related. You know, I'm going to do economics. And that's how I ended up in doing my economics degree, which ended up like working out fine for me. But it was definitely an uphill battle because I did, I did have to like essentially find my own co-ops in finance. And I vividly remember arts co-op telling me that like my expectations from co-op are completely unrealistic because of being in arts and not being in business school. But listen, worked out fine in the end. It's always good to have high expectations. That way you land. I know. I remember being outraged when they called me and they told me that. I I was thinking like, shouldn't you be like, okay, yeah, this is going to be hard, but here's how you can get there. But they literally told me, you should probably consider some like other things. We just don't want you to be disappointed from this. And, and I was thinking, this is so stupid. I'm just going to go and find my own opportunities. Yeah. It's like when somebody calls you too ambitious. Yeah, no, ambition is a yeah. very good trait to have. And I really respect drive. But I do want to dig into this. So it sounds like you had an aptitude for math. And that's why you went into economics and finance. Why did you choose going the business route instead of going into physics or computer science? I actually did physics quite like extensively in high school. It was one of my higher level subjects at IB as well. And I did enjoy it, but I think it was clear to me that I don't have the physics genius, if you know what I mean, nor do I have the math genius, uh, you know, to be honest. But I I just thought like I, I always liked the combination of logical and relationship. And I, I just felt like, economics and business and finance and just the general business world is somewhere where I'm going to do better and somewhere where I'm going to enjoy it more. Because as much as I, I actually, one of the things I do enjoy doing is like financial modeling, even for checks, right? I actually enjoy working with numbers and I enjoy doing analysis. But 
at the same time, I also enjoyed doing stuff like this and talking to you and uh, meeting new partners and doing pitches. And so I think that's probably, it was kind of clear to me. Like I was very lucky where from, I think I was very aware of what I thought I was going to do well and what I was going to enjoy from a very early age. And that's why it was kind of a no brainer for me that I was going to go the traditional business route. How did you know exactly what you wanted to do? Because throughout this conversation, I'm hearing a lot of themes about, I knew that I wanted to go abroad. I knew that I wanted to go and work in banking. How do you always have that direction? And where does that come from? I honestly have no idea. And I actually had the same, very similar conversation with my younger sister, who is six years younger, I said, and uh, she's now graduating UBC and has no idea what she wants to do. And she's like, like a lot of young people. Yeah. yeah like a, like a, most young people, to be honest. I don't know, to be honest. And I don't know if this is, was something that I like, knew I wanted to do or I just kind of sold myself on the vision. I remember, this is going to sound so stupid, but I remember watching a lot of Americanized movies and seeing people working on Wall Street and being like, oh, this sounds, this is kind of cool. You know, I, I kind of want to do that. This is interesting. I want to be in position of power and making very important decisions. And that's, I think, how I ended up moving into that direction. I was never a very creative person. So stuff creatively never came easy to me. And math always came very easy to me. So I don't know. It was kind of, um, I think I just told myself I knew what I wanted to do. And I just pursued that path in a way. But not to say that it doesn't change. I also told myself I was never going to become an entrepreneur and look at me now. So um, I think I just, I went with what made sense to me at the time. And then I also wasn't afraid to adapt when I wanted to adapt. That makes a lot of sense. The reason why I asked this question is being an entrepreneur takes pushing yourself way outside of your comfort zone. And it involves taking a lot of risks. So you mentioned like, okay, you have this vision and you just went towards it and you sold yourself on the idea and that vision and that kind of propelled you to take action. So throughout your career, you've, you've constantly pushed yourself outside of your comfort zone to find these opportunities and go out and create them. What kind of skills or what toolkit have you built in order to allow yourself to do that? I think for me, going out of my comfort zone, like just since the very beginning, I find I'm most excited when I'm like defying the odds in a way. Like I'm most excited when I'm told, hey, this is probably not going to work out. And then I make, uh, I find a way to make it happen. And I think one of the things that you have to be able to succeed doing that is almost like this incredible belief in yourself, like almost to a point where you're ignoring what everyone else is telling you. Like you have to still listen to advice, obviously. So you have to listen to, you know, people who have been there and have done that. But you also, and this is incredibly important as an entrepreneur, you have to have this like incredible optimism and just believe that you're just going to make it happen. And I don't know where that comes from. To be honest, I think that's very hard to train. I think I've been very lucky where I was very loved as a child. I was always told that I will go and do great things. But there was also times where I think I was challenged as a child and was, you know, I had to prove that I'm worth it. Like I had to prove to my dad that I'm worth it for him to spend thousands of dollars to send me to boarding school. I had to prove to him that I would get a scholarship at UBC. It was always 
because my dad is so high achieving, it was almost like a competition. Like I'll show him that I can do incredible things. And I do think that's in the end of the day, like that's the main thing that you need. You just need to have this incredible belief in yourself. I think beyond that, you have to be very open to trying and failing. Like in the end of the day, you have to be not scared of failure. You have to think about failures. You know what? I'm going to take this. This is not what I wanted, but it's an opportunity to learn. And I have this mindset. I literally believe this truly that whatever happens, happens for the best. Like I look at a lot of the times where I thought I had failed at something in the past. And at the end of the day, I look at it and I think, oh, actually, no, like this was life steering me the way where I was supposed to go. And it's it's kind of hard to train that mindset, to be honest. Like, I, I don't really have advice for that because I think it's very personal to you and to me and how we think about this. But you just have to, like, you have to believe in yourself, as stupid as it sounds. Yeah, if you don't believe in yourself, who, who else will? Well, exactly. Yeah. One thing that I always come back to whenever taking a risk is this concept of fear, right? Fear holds a lot of people back in terms of going into entrepreneurship or switching careers, right? So everybody's going to feel fear around making a decision or on taking the next step. So you feel the fear, but you do it anyways. And I think that's been exemplified throughout your journey, right? Moving into your first job where you were working in investment banking. I want to spend more time on your journey building Chexy specifically, because there's so much in that business that we could talk about. But throughout your journey, so you started, you were working in investment banking. How did you pivot from investment banking to leading finance at Square? It was actually very interesting because I really loved my job. I had an incredible team at, at Deloitte where I was an M&A. And it really came to down to I really wanted to specialize in an industry. So when I was in, in banking in an M&A, in Canada specifically, because we just don't have enough companies to specialize for M&A, most M&A professionals are mining or non-mining. And by non-mining, you do everything outside of mining deals. So I was non-mining. I would do consumer tech, professional services, like I did HVAC business deals, like car dealership deals, like you name it. And I think that after like almost three years there, I really wanted, like I did a couple of tech deals and I really wanted to narrow it in tech. Like I knew it was an industry I was very interested in. I just saw like the innovation. And I really kind of wanted to zero in on it. When you think about like finance roles within tech in Canada specifically, and like at the time, US was not an option because I was applying for my permanent residency here. So I had to still stay in Canada. And when we think about finance roles, like tangential to M&A in Canada, in tech specifically, we don't really have any corporate development or buy side roles. So let's say, for example, Microsoft, Adobe, whatever, all these tech companies, they have teams who evaluate buy-side opportunities, like acquisition opportunities for them. All these roles are in San Francisco, right? And so in Canada, because we don't have a lot of public tech companies, like there's very few very good corporate development roles. So that was one of the paths that was gone. The other option is to go tech-focused private equity or venture capital. Again, very few roles, very few opportunities in Canada. Like, especially if you want to do tech, we just don't have enough big public tech companies for, for, for those roles to exist here. And this, the third type of role is strategic finance is like leading a, more like a finance function. And we do know like 
doing more on an inside finance stuff like competition, pricing, modeling, all that type of stuff. And when the Rolex Square came up, I, first of all, it was a company I was very interested in. I thought it was going to be a really cool experience. And then because I, I, even though I wasn't sure about moving into strategic finance, I thought, hey, because I have this opportunity to lead the Canadian market and work with leads who are way older with me. Like I worked with a head of marketing in Canada, a head of sales in Canada. Like essentially it was a role that kind of allowed me to raise above my station very fast. And for a company I thought was doing amazing things. That's how I ended up out there. And I also really loved it. That's where I fell in love with payments and understanding payments. Like I, I knew nothing about payments before that. And that's how I ended up eventually at Chexy, to be honest. Was the move to Square in pursuit of better work-life balance after coming from IB? No. I don't really, I don't think I have work-life balance and I don't think I ever strove for that. But it was more because I wanted to be in like working in the tech industry. And it was because I wanted to, like, I was kind of tired of just like working on a deal and then you move on to another company. Like I wanted to do something a little bit more substantial where I felt like I was making a big difference within a company. So that's why the move happened. Interesting. Would you call yourself more of a high level thinker or somebody that drills into the details more? I'm definitely a high-level thinker. I am terrible at details, which actually why investment banking was challenging for me. Especially because I actually came to investment banking from a startup. I worked for a year and a half where, for when I was in university as a financial analyst. And it was a Series A startup. I helped them raise their Series A. They actually got acquired by Salesforce a few years ago. Incredible experience. I was there for basically an eight-month internship and ended up staying there for my fourth year on a part-time basis. And I came from this like startup environment where I was reporting directly to a CFO into a very rigid investment banking at Deloitte. You're an analyst, you're grinding. Then like I had I had an incredible team and my my bosses were awesome in terms of it doesn't it didn't feel like I was just an Excel monkey, which can which you can feel like when you're an investment banking analyst, like one of the big five, but you're still like within a big corporate machine. And so that was a huge adjustment to me because yeah, attention to detail, I'm not the best at. And that's like the most important skill for an analyst in, in banking. I was always the detail strategy, high level thinker. And I still am. Like I, I think Deloitte taught me a lot of attention to detail. I've gotten so much better at it. But I don't love to be in the details. I, I enjoy the most of my time to be thinking about high-level vision stuff. And as a founder, you are the visionary of the business. You are leading everybody towards this end goal. So that's a critical skill set to have. The reason I ask this question is it sounds like throughout your career, all of these different skills you've been picking up throughout different points in your life and all of them beautifully come together in your current role. When you were at Square, how did you come across the idea for Chexy? Were you building it while you were still employed? What were yes. the early days like? For sure. Um, so, and this comes back to what I told you just a few minutes ago is that's why I truly believe whatever happens, happens for the best. Because I, before getting into Square, I had applied to a couple of venture capital roles and didn't get them. And I remember being devastated, you know, like so, so upset that it didn't work out. 
but look at me now. Like that, getting into that role at Square and getting that payments experience and ultimately starting Chexy, like I'm incredibly happy with where I am now. In terms of how it started, so I Square actually moved me to Toronto. So I was based in Vancouver before they relocated me and it was during COVID. So I moved here January, 2021 and nobody was even showing apartments in person. Like a lot of people, all the landlords didn't want to show condos in person and I obviously needed to find a place to live. I remember that vividly. I couldn't even see the unit I ended up signing for in person. Yeah, my landlord still insisted I hand deliver her 12 positive checks for rent. And like that just didn't really make sense to me. At the same time, I'm working uh, at the time that when I moved, I was already at, at Square for about six or seven months. I oversee our model and I see our processing by what we call merchant category codes, uh, which is essentially types of businesses that Square actually operates within Canada. And we, during the pandemic, saw such a massive surge in MCC codes or just like types of businesses that Square supports that typically you have had a very hard time attracting. So think professional services like accountants, et cetera, home and repair, like uh, all of these type of uh, businesses that previously relied massively on cash and checks had to adapt because people just weren't really dealing with paper at the time of the pandemic. But we still didn't really see anything in residential renting. And my landlord is still requesting me to hand deliver her positive checks. So this was one of those, I think, frustrating moments. Like I remember sitting down with one of my co-founders when I actually signed the lease and telling him finding a place was like such a mess. Every landlord asked me for different things. One of them asked me so much like personal level of detail. It's like almost like signing over my firstborn child. And listen, now that I'm in this industry, I understand why they do that. But it was just such a frustrated and long process. Then you end up paying with check, going to the bank draft for the deposit. It's just so antiquated. And then on the other hand, I'm seeing like this innovation and payment space. So happening within so many other industries outside of residential renting. That's what kind of got the idea of brewing. And I did work on that for about six months before I left my job. But I will say, like, when I say me and my co-founder, uh, we worked on that before we quit our jobs. It's like, in the first three weeks after we quit our jobs, we had accomplished like 10 times what we had accomplished for six months prior just because of focus and time and drive and dedication. Like we did a lot of customer interviews, but we're thinking about how we're going to build this. But in the end of the day, like it wasn't really, yes, we were working on it, but it didn't really amount to anything substantial until we like really zeroed in and said, okay, let's give this a shot. What's the worst that can happen? Let's quit our jobs, join this incubator and try and make the most out of it. And that's where we are today. How did you meet your co-founders? Captain, who I actually started with from day zero, we went to university together and have been close friends ever since. So he was one of the reasons I was interested in moving to Toronto as well. He was kept convincing me uh, about going to Toronto. And every time I would be here on work trips with Deloitte, uh, he was like, oh, you're going to move here. And, you know, I think Toronto fits my personality. I'm kind of a go-go person. Vancouver is way more laissez-faire. And so um, he was just like one of my closest friends um, kind of since I came to Canada. And Ben, actually, very interestingly, we met uh, through Y Combinator co-founder matching, which I massively recommend. We knew we needed to, a, a CTO co-founder. So Abtin, he's 
semi-technical. He's more on like the data strategy and product strategy style. He can do some coding, but he's not a CTO. I'm non-technical from that standpoint completely. I'm a sales co-founder. Like I'm go-to-market strategy, anything not doing with building stuff. So we knew we needed a third person and we got really lucky with Ben. He was one of the first person people I matched with on Y Combinator. We ended up bringing him in as a contractor for the first two months just to see how we work together before giving him a co-founder title. And we officially brought him in summer of 2022 as a third co-founder. And, you know, it's been amazing. Um, I think three is great. I think it helps to, you know, fight battles three ways. Uh, so um, I'm very lucky with having both of them, to be honest. I also have a business and we have two co-founders. And the fighting battles makes so much sense. Like I relate to that so hard, especially like when you are coming across an issue, it's 2v1. Yeah, so exactly. There's and always a majority. I think that massively helps because yeah. otherwise you could just be like, hey, you're wrong. There's I'm wrong. And it, it gets emotional, right? Like, yeah. you, like you said, building a business, you have so many downs for the glimmer of hope that ups are coming somewhere, you know? And in the end of the day, like having a 2v1 and being able to make decisions quickly, that's a huge superpower. That has helped us a lot. That last line, being able to make decisions quickly is so critical when you're starting a business because it's how fast you're running. Somebody else is building something that could be quite similar, but they yes. might come to market faster than you and they might get funding from a VC quicker than you will. So speed is, is absolutely critical from my perspective. The reason why I was asking the question about the co-founders is outside of just you making this decision to go full-time, I'm sure you worked up to it. You were saving for it. You made sure you had eight months to a year worth of runway, I would assume, right before you were making this massive yes. financial decision. How did you convince other people to be on that same wavelength and also take that risk? So I think with Aptine, we always saw eye to eye on this. We, in the end of the day, we both started working at the same time. He was working at PwC, I was at Square. And when we, we ended up quitting our jobs, when we got an offer from Antler, the incubator, we ended up joining in January 22. And I think for both of us, we knew that we had to commit to this full time. And we kind of looked at it from a standpoint of what's the worst that can happen, right? We're going to go, we're going to give this a shot. We'll be in this like really cool 10 week incubator program. Maybe we can raise money uh, from them after the, the end of the 10 weeks and actually try to make something happen. And if we don't, you know, we'll go back and find another big, big Ford job or another, you know, tech company job. Like, you'll be completely fine. And I do think that it, there's twofold, like being able to have work experience and already have established career and network before leaving for Chexy gave me the confidence of being able to say, you know what, even if this doesn't work out, I'll be fine. I'll find another job. I am confident in that. And then number two is I'm not going to like joke around, like having come from an upper middle class family for both of us, some of the things that a lot of, I think, entrepreneurs don't talk about is most founders come from comfortable backgrounds, not necessarily backgrounds where they have a ton of money, but where they know they have something to fall back on. And I think that's incredibly important because we left our jobs knowing that, hey, number one, we both have experience and we'll find another job and we have savings. But beyond that, I also knew worse comes to worse. My dad can help me out for a couple of months. Abdin's parents, Abdin can move back home with his parents. He grew up in Toronto. He can be okay. 
And I think that's also a superpower because if you're worried about not just yourself, but also your family and your parents, like making that decision is way more hard, is way harder than it is, than it was for us, if we're being honest. If you have dependents too, if you have kids, it makes that decision oh, yeah. so much more difficult. So yeah, I definitely see why you made the decision. First of all, having the experience that you did, being able to fall back on your career at any point. This is why I don't necessarily agree with people dropping out of university to go pursue businesses because so many businesses fail. You could do everything right, but somebody else comes up with an idea. It's still, exactly, it still might not work out. So you always should have a backup plan. And the fact that you have your career, an incredible career to fall back on is huge. And now when you started building checks, you mentioned you applied to the incubator. You quit as soon as you got into the incubator and then you started building full-time? Yes, exactly. So the program we got into started January 22. And so we essentially gave out notices in December when we got in. And, um, you know, I remember talking about it to my parents and my dad was all very excited, obviously, because, you know, he always kind of for the last few years after I graduated, he kept asking me, he's like, hey, do you have any ideas? You know, he's an entrepreneur. So he always kind of wanted me to, to start anything, something. And I was always kind of, no, not really. You know, and only like really the year before that, when I started talking about the idea for Chexy, which obviously wasn't called Chexy at the time, but he was very excited. So he he was very supportive. And I think my, so we're Aptin's parents as well. And that's kind of, you know, when we quit. And actually on Ben's side, because Ben was already in like a startup mode, he's already tried a couple of other startups. You didn't really have to convince him to quit another full-time job because he was already trying to build a couple of other things. And then he really knew this is what he wanted to do. So in terms of like alignment of intention and what needed to be done, like we all fit together perfectly. That's so critical. Being able to have people that not just have the same vision, but are also taking action to the same degree. Sometimes in businesses, you have one person who's more committed to the goal and takes on a little bit more work. And then there's tension that comes up. So having three people equally aligned to a vision is, is so important. When you started at Antler, what kind of support were they giving you? So were there, I know it's an incubator, but were there advisors helping you out? How did you test the concept while at the incubator and then moving forward? Yeah, so it it specifically was like a lot of advisors, a lot of meeting with the actual Antler general partners and you're meeting with them weekly that steering you the right directions. It's like an entrepreneurship 101. And I even mentioned to you earlier in the podcast that in the first like two to three weeks of doing this full time, we've accomplished like 10x what we've been doing about six months before that. And one is because of the time and the focus, but two is also because we were thinking about things that didn't really matter at the time. Like we were thinking about like, how we're going to build this. When you're starting a business, the first question you need to be answering is like, do people even want what I'm building and, or what I want to build? And are people actually going to use it? And how am I going to make money on this? Tech problems are solvable. You'll find a way to build something. It's the problems of does someone actually want to pay for what I'm building? That's the biggest question. And I think Anna did a really good job with coaching us to think about that. Is like, go and talk to customers. Go and understand their problems. And so the first few weeks, that's exactly what you do. You spend a lot of time refining your idea. You spend a lot of time talking to potential customers. We talked to hundreds of renters in Toronto. Acti literally went on the street to talk to, to people and ask them questions. You have to get really, really crafty. And they really pushed us to do that. And, you know, that worked out 
you know, in our favor. We, I think, ended up developing a very strong thesis. Even sometimes a thesis that maybe contradicted what the pair partners and Andler, the direction that they thought we should go to. But we were so confident that what we have is what people want, having spoken to a lot of them, that it ended up outweighing potentially what their own thinking was and convincing them that's the right path. That's why they ended up investing in us. And that's why we ended up building checks in that is today. Is there anything that you would have done differently if you were starting today? I think like I wouldn't have spent six months prior to that thinking about things that don't matter. I also think being a first-time founder and especially getting like having advisors and mentors is critical. But another thing that as a founder you have to have is that conviction in what you're building. Because as many people, as many opinions, and there's going to be lots of people who are subject matter experts that might not even agree with the way that you're going. So for example, like our business model right now, we charge a fee for renters to pay with credit card. And when we first talked about it to a few of our advisors and even some of the Antelope partners, they were very bearish in it. They were like, oh, people are not going to pay that. We have thousands of tenants who are paying that because they see the value in it. But I think one of the things that I, I, I wish I, I had then is I think we would have moved faster if I had just maybe had even more confidence and even more conviction in, in the path that we were going and made decisions faster. Because I think when as a first time founder, you're, like, you're so afraid to make a mistake, like you spend a lot of time potentially moving in circles. But I think it's also part of the journey. But I think had you done that, things would have worked out differently, right? Like you said, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, I don't think, I think I started at a perfect time. I think that we, I had enough experience to understand payments very well. So I, I, I was, I think I, I, I had started at the right time. I also was at the right stage of my life, frankly. Like I was single at the time. I didn't really, I didn't have anything to be doing outside of building Chexy. And I think that's incredibly critical because the, the first few months, like the focus you have to give to this is incredible. And even to this day, obviously, 90% of my waking time, I'm thinking about my startup or dreaming about my startup. But I think I had the confidence. I had the resources. Like you said, I had some savings to fall back on. All of this allowed me to take on the risks and do it in a way that ended up being like, you know, relatively successful based on where we are today. So I actually think the timing had worked out perfectly for me. So you come out of Antler, you yeah. have the mentors, you have, I assume, some basics tech stack. We actually didn't. When we okay. got, when we were, we raised from Antler, we just had a deck. Like we didn't have Ben yet, so we didn't build anything. And that's actually, I think, what helped us, right? Like we spent so much time really understanding the customer problem. And the MVP that we ended up building and, and launching with, it wasn't that complicated technologically. Like we have payment processor, like we have to find a way to match households, like paying and payouts, but it's not like super complicated tech, tech product. So I was never worried that we'd be able to build it in a way or engineer it. We spent a lot of the time on the customer side. We ended up bringing in Ben and in the summer starting to build the product and we didn't end up launching until early 2023 and the reason for that is on top of being like a startup and a fintech 
this is a lot of regulatory you have to go through to be a payment, like a, a, and a, they call it a money service business at Canada, because we have to have very high confidence that the transactions are not related to terrorist financing, money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. And so with that, on top of building a payments product and dealing with money, you also have to do the regulatory, the compliance, the certifications. So the actual build time for when we started building the product to go live took us about six to seven months between the build, the engineering, the thinking about how we're going to actually distribute the product, how we're going to market it, which ended up not actually mattering because people just found us on Reddit. Great thing to happen, but we ended up coming from graduating Adler summer 2022, and then we launched, we started processing February 2023. Okay, so Antler, the way that their incubator works is at the end, they have funding that they give out to some founders based on a deck. So I assume you guys got some funding from them in order to continue building. Yes. Yeah. So we got some funding from them. We were one of the five startups in their first Canadian portfolio to receive it. And so we got 150K. At the time, I thought, oh my God, that's so much money for like us to receive as an investment. After my next round, which was 1.3 million, I thought, man, 150K was nothing. Now I have 1.3 million. Now 1.3 million seems like nothing based on how much I need to raise in my next round. But we got 150K. We started paying ourselves a very modest salary as well as Ben, who at that point had joined us. And we brought on our first full-time engineer in October or November of 2022. So really at the time, the only burn and the money that we were spending was just on kind of salaries of us and our top first engineer, Jimmy. A very lean team. Yes. Okay, so and, now you... And so today. You started, you've got your MVP, you've tested the concept, you have a very clear problem. The rental process in Canada is very antiquated and you want to make it as easy as possible for people to rent and then earn rewards on their rent. So you mentioned Reddit, but how did you then go on to actually acquire customers and scale? Yeah. So our first few customers were our friends and me. I'm a renter in Canada. I was one of the first users to be paying rent with Chexy, which is great. And because our product was, I think, easy to implement with not having to ask your landlord to sign on or anything, we were quite successful in the first month for at least our beta users were just a bunch of our friends who also renters who, whose landlord would accept e-transfer. So that's how we started with like the testing side. And then the next thing that we did was we just started posting on Reddit from like different accounts we all had about Chexy. And we knew there was a couple of personal finance and maturity threads there are going to be where our target customer is. So we just started posting about us. Hey, has anyone come across this company? As if we're not us, obviously. Like it's called the rutted growth hacking. And that's how we got like probably our first 100 customers. And that was incredibly successful. And then I think another pivotal side and pivotal stage after was I met Ricky from Prince of Travel. And he was very interested in the product that we were building because it's like such a good fit to his audience, which are all credit card churners who want to hit those high sign-up bonuses. And rent is like such a no-brainer way to hit those sign-up bonuses. 
So he actually ended up writing an article or Prince of Travel, like his team ended up writing an article about Chucksy uh, two months into us going live. And that drove a massive surge of signups as well. And at that point, you have people talking about you, you have people referring, and it's all to the races. But I would say Reddit and having that original kind of relationship with Ricky was like how we ended up getting our first couple hundred users. Especially because paid marketing is so expensive. So using these guerrilla techniques, going to Reddit, such a unique strategy. Especially because your first few customers and your first hundred customers, you want you, you don't want them to come from. It's like generally people who find you on ads, like they're more likely to churn, try you out, and then not really understand the value. Like you want the people who are like, oh shit, I this is a brainer. I really need this product. And when we think about like our target customer and our first hundred users, like they are these like hardcore personal finance optimizers you know they're they're collecting points collecting miles churning cards for them it's like oh 175 percent no brainer i know i'm gonna get way more value out of the points that i make on my two thousand dollar rent every single month and that worked it's magic for us also from an seo perspective having all of these referral links it really helps you build your seo score and helps your webpage come up for the future. So I think that's a great way to build sustainable growth. But yes. I want to ask, what's your plan for Chexy in the future? So now you've got thousands of customers. You're raising capital. Again, you mentioned that. So walk me through what the next steps look like for you. Yeah, so we're actually at an interesting step. So we did raise a follow-up round, like a proper VC round in February, right before we launched the product. And that's what enabled us to launch the product, but also scale the team. So we are now a team of nine. We have four full-time engineers, one customer experience person, one growth person, and then three founders. Uh, so the team is still relatively lean, and you know, given that we're processing millions, tens of millions of dollars in rent payments now, um, the strategy for kind of like, we actually are coming up on our next fundraising right now, and then Hopefully, post that, we'll get to profitability in 2025. That's kind of, you know, the approach that we're taking. But the main things that I'm focused on in 2024 is essentially twofold. So we've proven that there's some willingness to pay rent with credit cards and to build credit on rent. How do I now scale that even more efficiently than what we've been, than how we've been scaling to date? We've been growing 30% month over month. A lot of our growth is organic. So we're scaling very well, but I'm still selling one user at a time, if you're thinking about it. Like we're still a B2C product. What is working beautifully for us and like where we're positioned, I think very, in a very opportune way is because we're in residential renting, we can use landlords potentially as a way to distribute our product for free. We have this like distribution channel that is essentially a free distribution channel if we're able to integrate with their payment stacks and their current uh, property management softwares. So my one of my focuses in 2024 is via partnerships, via land distribution. How do I start selling one to many? How do I move from B to C to B to B to C? Because I can sell a thousand tenants, or I can go and approach Minto or Greenwind or Shiplake one of those like landlords who have thousand tenants. So one of them to offer Chexy is one of their payment methods. 
and potentially get hundreds of tenants at once or thousands of tenants at once. So that's kind of like a number one thing that is on the docket in 2024. The second one, and I can't say too much about it because it's very confidential and it's not conferred, but we're working on a partnership with a very, very big rewards player in the market, the biggest in the market, which would provide our users even more value and potentially even more rewards, potentially even offer Chexy as a result at a lower fee and make it a much more of a no-brainer proposition to more tenants out there. I'll kind of leave it super vague, but that's something that's very exciting that we're working on in 2024. And then lastly, we've had a lot of requests to move beyond rent. People are like, hey, can I pay other tangential to rent expenses, like my household expenses through Shexi? Think about utilities, tenant insurance, potentially Wi-Fi. So I think in 2024, and the strategy is currently, Chexy is going to move beyond rent and we're going to potentially have a way for you to have all your household expenses on Chexy. And we're just going to manage the process of paying your landlord, your insurance bill, your utility bill, so on and so forth. You know, we become kind of multifaceted in a way of processing and how much value we provide to our users. Those are kind of the main things that I think we are focused on in 2024. And beyond that, raising our seed financing very soon. So what is the seed financing going to go towards out of Uh, all of these different goals? What's the biggest priority? uh, Number one, just being able to build even faster. Being able to, like with a couple of these partnerships, other things that we have to keep in mind is there's cash flow considerations with how some of these are structured. So we just need to have like a more significant cash balance, like just to pad our bank account. But primarily is build faster. I think we haven't done the best job with branding. Like we haven't had to, but I do think there's a huge opportunity for us to actually explain better the value of Chexy, especially as we move beyond like our ideal customer profile and more towards like renters out there. I don't think we've done a very good job at that. And frankly, it's because we didn't have capacity, nor that's really something you should focus on at a pre-seed stage. But now that we know that there's some willingness to pay, it's all going to be about how do we build faster? How do we scale quicker? And how do we communicate the value that we provide better? When you talk about your partners as well, you've got a very technical team, right? Data science, CTO, people focused on the the tech stack and the the product and then yourself from a sales and go-to-market perspective, but also all the financial modeling experience that you have. Do you have somebody on the team that focuses on creative? Yes, I have a growth associate, but primarily like he does all organic stuff. So TikTok, Instagram, he runs our newsletter, uh, which is the Chexy Rundown, where we talk about loyalty content, uh, card content. I primarily run kind of the go-to-market function. I probably am not the most skilled go-to-market leader out there just because that's not my background. But to be honest, in the early days, your growth should be led by your product. If your product is really wanted, like you will worry less about growth. And that's how it worked out for us. Like we've ended up being able to scale 30% month of a month. So January is like our best month yet. I think so far, like, I think we're going to surpass 30% month of a month growth. And, um, you know, we're not doing this because we're super, we're spending a lot of money on acquisition or we're incredibly skilled at acquisition. We're doing this because 
people want to use our product. And I think that's what in the early days, that's what it should be. Once you raise your seed, that's where you can get way better at how do I market properly? How, like, how much am I spending on performance? Because now you've proven that people want your product and it's all about how do I get my product in front of as many people as I can. Mm -hmm. There was a lot in there that was really critical. So if you have a good product, the product speaks for itself. So focus on building the product, focus on solving the problem. Don't focus on the branding and making it sexy because the yes. audience will come. Your customer and a crazy stage for sure, because in the end of the day, it's like product-led growth. Like in the early yeah. days, it should be product-led growth because people just want to use your product. How many months of runway do you have right now? We have about eight months of runway now. So yes. that's why we're kicking off our race imminently in the next one to like one to two months. We're waiting on signing a big partnership that I was alluding to because I think that would make our raise even more attractive. So that's really the only thing that's stopping us from going to market today. But in the current fundraising environment, you want to have at least like six months of runaway before you go to, before like when you're starting to raise because it, you know, takes time. When you look at product market fit, do you think you're getting closer and closer to that point or have you hit it yes with i think we're getting closer and closer i i have a hard time i don't think anyone really knows what product market fit is from a standpoint of where what i see where we are today we have definitely proven that there is some willingness to pay for people to pay for with credit cards and clearly enough people care about it there is beyond shadow of a doubt when it comes to a bunch of other things that we want to build in the future obviously for that we're still going to be in collaborative stage but i do think we're close like i think we're close to showing hey that like rewards and rent people really care the way we're doing this seems to be sustainable seems to be working so i think we're getting close throughout the whole journey what are some of the biggest roadblocks or challenges you've had because it's, it's not just all sunshine and rainbows oh for sure no it's mostly not but there's been many let me just give you a couple so I said building a fintech, compliance regulatory, massive roadblock. As an MSB, you have a hard time even finding a bank that will bank you as a business because nobody wants to deal with a payment like with an MSB because there's like, you know, AML and, you know, MSB related risks for banks. Building a fintech in Canada, even harder. We don't have any banking as a service infrastructure. We don't have any open banking in terms of our infrastructure, like it's all built on legacy bank technology. A lot of that, like building a fintech in the US, way easier than it is in Canada. There is, in the end of the day, also an upside to that because once you do build here, because we're a land of oligopolies and monopolies, you have an opportunity to capture a massive share of a market and not have a lot of competition. You think about even like the biggest fintech disruptors we have right now, we only have a couple. Like, well, simple, uh, Coho, Neo, you know, it's basically like kind of the buck really stops there. In the US, you know, you have hundreds, but it's completely different market here. So I would say like the regulatory and just like building a fintech in Canada because of legacy bank tech is number one. Number two is building a payments business and building a business that deals with people's most important expense incredibly stressful because as a startup you have to move fast right like they say it's, it's okay if your mvp breaks but it's not really okay if we charge someone's credit card and not pay there so it's there is this really fine balance of we have to move fast we have to continue building we have to continue continue shipping 
But at some stage, we also can't afford to, when we're paying thousands of people's rent, when we're paying 100 people's rent, you can kind of tell, you know, have received all this money, the system has paid everyone out, everything is good. We need to pay about thousands. Like, you can't review that yourself anymore, right? So you deal with millions of dollars every month. And if you screw up, that's terrible because your tenant might receive, one of your, the tenants that use you might receive a, an eviction. So how do you balance that? Still something that we're figuring out. And then beyond that, I think, you know, we are three co-founders. We all are working hard towards the same goal, but it's not, it doesn't come without challenging. It doesn't mean that we don't always argue or always disagree or are always in the same page. And that's one of the reasons they say co-founders breaking up is one of the top reasons startups fail. So being able to manage that relationship at this like really high level of stress and still being able to ship product fast and build, like it's incredibly challenging and difficult. So I will say there is more downs than there is ups at this stage, which is why you really have to believe and really have to love what you're doing. Otherwise, it's just not worth it. I was going to ask you if you have one final piece of advice that you can offer a future founder or anybody listening to the podcast. You did kind of allude to it a little bit with your with your last uh, sentence yeah. there. but I guess like I will say, and I, I say this all the time, only go into this if you're really passionate about the problem you're solving and you're ready to hear lots of no's, eat a lot of shit and essentially, you know, be kind of miserable for the foreseeable future just with the hope of I'm going to solve this problem or I'm going to change this industry. You have to love that problem. You have to live and breathe it. Don't do it for any other reason. I think like people who found businesses because they think it's more flexibility, your own boss, or maybe there's potential you'll earn a lot of money. Yes, all of these things are great, but none of these things are worth it what you'll be going through. It's incredibly challenging in building a business. And the only thing that like gets me up every single day is because I know I make an impact on thousands of tenants across Canada. And I love that. Like I find that the most rewarding thing and I would not do it for, like I would not start a business any other, other industry right now because that's like the one problem I'm super passionate about. To summarize, follow your passion, follow your purpose. And focus on, not on the money and the wealth aspect of it, but focus on that problem. Yeah. Well, focus on the problem and just be excited about the change that you can, that you can make. Like, I think that's going to be the most rewarding thing that comes out of that experience anyway. It's all think, about the journey. It's not about the destination. Definitely. I think entrepreneurs are going to change the world. Just being able to transform see inundated processes and problems and be the ones who are building something to solve for those problems, I think is an incredible journey. So I really respect entrepreneurship because of that. Lisa, I, I do want to ask you one final question because this is an investment-related podcast and my aim is to help lift women up, help them start businesses and learn how to be better with money. What's your money philosophy? Oh, I'm the wrong person to be asking this. I actually quite follow, I think, my like parents' approach to life and to money. So like, I think you have to have some savings. I think you have to have some cushion and be able to pull back on something is very nice. In North America, especially, people are so conservative. 
It's all about safe, 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 buy a house, you know, do everything right type of thing. And I think that's beautiful and that's great. You should save, you should invest, you should try and build for your retirement. But not when it comes, like, especially like when you're young, not when it comes at an expense of experiencing life. You will only be in your 20s or, or your early 30s for so long. You'll only be carefree without kids for so long. And so, like, there's things that I just don't care about spending money on, like fancy clothes, shoes, bags, like, no interest. But I'm a massive foodie. Like, I will pay $300 for a meal because that's what I value. And to summarize, I think you have to be responsible. But I, my money philosophy also is also you have to enjoy life because you might die tomorrow. And then what's, that, what's all the money that you save is going to do for you? That's kind of the way I think about it. Yeah, you're not going to get buried with it. But I think about this all the time. Like when you go, the one thing you're going to think back on when you're on your deathbed is all the experiences you have. And that makes you wealthy. Travel makes you wealthy. Your relationships make you wealthy from my perspective. For sure. And think about you're only going to be young and have energy to do certain things for so long, right? And so as much as I'm a workaholic and I work all the time and obviously I care for Trixie succeeding, life is beyond, is just not just your work as well, right? Some of my happiest times is being able to go and travel with my fiance and being able to go and eat really nice food and you can't put a price on these type of things. I think that's the most important takeaway. My biggest takeaway from this conversation is bet on yourself and have the confidence to trust yourself and know that you have the skill set to succeed. And whatever happens, it happens for the best. Exactly. I think we'll end it off on this note. This was an incredible conversation. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed every minute of this. Thank you so much for having me, Nico. It's been great.